When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Hey, if you like this podcast, if you've benefited from it, then please consider becoming a Patreon supporter, a patron. You can find the link in the description. If you're watching this on YouTube, uh, go ahead and, and smash that like button and subscribe, all that good stuff. I hate saying that stuff, but it's YouTube. Uh, and Above and beyond, if you guys really love this podcast, go over to Apple Podcasts and leave me a five-star review and a comment. That would be huge. Today, uh, I don't want to keep going on any of that because today I have a very special guest. I have with me Dr. Josh Rasmussen, and we're going to be talking about his book, um, Defending the Correspondence Theory of Truth, and he gets into all the stuff. He just scratches right where I itch. So uh, without further ado, let's just bring him right in. Josh, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, man. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. I think we we were scheduled to do this, and then I got COVID, and I think we I accidentally planned it for like Thanksgiving or something. So it's been a long time coming, but yeah. thanks so much, man. I'm I'm yeah. really excited about this. Well, I, and I, I kind of pushed this back too because I've been working on this book on consciousness. I wanted to get farther along, and then you reached out, and I was like, oh yeah, let's do this. Yeah. So I'm very excited to be uh, on the show with you. Well, I love that. I, I hope that we can get there uh, eventually. I, I want to talk. Uh, I want to talk some truth. I want to talk facts, and then um, a, a little bit about getting from truth to a necessary being that, that you okay. cover um, with Proust in your, in your book. Um, I got it right here. Necessary existence. So let's talk yeah. some books here, necessary existence. And then um, we also have uh, God to reason how I, I couldn't help but make that <laughs> joke. I know everyone does it. It's how reason can lead to God, a philosopher's bridge to faith. And uh, there's just two of them that I had that I found in my library as I'm, as I'm packing uh, or unpacking, man, you've been, you've been busy. This is awesome. But, I want to talk about your your analytic metaphysical work, and we we're yeah. just talking off air here. It hasn't gotten the same uh, audience that your philosophy of religion has. Well, it's sort of maybe like the engine or the pieces of the engine that you know you put it into the car. People don't really see it, but they see maybe how the car runs. They're looking yeah. for the application, mm-hmm. and so I, I in the popular sphere, people want to know about the big questions. You know, does life have meaning? Does God exist? Do we have free will? Uh, we'll talk about truth today, you know, but when we're talking about truth, usually people aren't thinking about, okay, uh, you know, what is the metaphysics of a fact? Yeah. Right. They, they they will use the word fact, but they won't think, hey, what is a fact, right? But thinking about that, I think, can really help you to become more powerful in your analysis, in your building of a worldview, because now you're getting into the parts of the engine. And mm-hmm. so that that kind of stuff, yeah, it doesn't really see a lot a lot of um, discussion as much in the popular sphere, but it's I feel like it's been invaluable for my work in the popular sphere. It's yeah. sort of in all of the stuff that I do. It's yeah. kind of part of it. Yeah. 
Man, I, I think you're totally right. And I love that. I love that you think like that because that's, that's, I've been dragged that way, kicking and screaming, because I, I want to go deeper and deeper. And, yeah. and then I go to, to stuff like your work. But like you said, everyone's always talking about facts, fake facts. Well, what are your facts? What are your facts? Well, and, and I told you this earlier, but um, Cornelius Van Til and um, C.S. Lewis, there's C.I. Lewis, all sorts of David Lewis, all sorts of Lewis's, but C.S. Yeah. Lewis, they've been probably my uh, the two pillars that have influenced my thought the most. And both of them at different points talk about, Hey, look, I'll give you facts, but eventually I'm going to have to get at your philosophy of fact. Yeah. And so I saw that and I was like, all right, cool. Let's get into some philosophy of facts. And I couldn't find a whole ton on it. I didn't really even know where to go. Do I go to the epistemologists? Do I go to the metaphysicians, metaphysicians, mm-hmm. the logicians? Um, and when we think about truth, what domain does that fall under when it comes to philosophical disciplines? Well, I would think metaphysics, uh, you know, it's one of the items of existence, or I guess that's a question, right? Is truth yeah. even an item of existence? Uh, in fact, I was actually just writing about this this week uh, because I have a section on my book on consciousness about thoughts. Mm. I talk about how thoughts can be true, but then I talk about, well, how do you know that? And in my work on consciousness, I'm using this tool of introspection where you look inward at your own thoughts and you inspect yeah. the properties of those thoughts. Well, I think that the only way that you can even know what truth is and even that it exists is by using this sort of inner light to inspect something very familiar to you. Uh, you don't you don't have to wait for scientists who are studying the material world to give you information about the nature of truth or even facts. You can actually investigate this right within your own mind yeah. by investigating the the properties of your own thoughts. Yeah. And so that's that's been interesting just even thinking about that for myself. Well, that's awesome. I, I love that. That that kind of cuts against the grain of the well, the trajectory of the philosophers who are a little bit beholden to the scientists who who want to push away from you know Well, we can work together, but yeah, yeah. It, sometimes we feel a little bit embarrassed, you know, that not a lot of people know that natural philosophy is uh now what we call sort of the natural sciences. Right. But it used to be called a philosophy, right? And there's sort of this worry that once we get enough clarity on a subject, we stop calling it a philosophy. We just call it science. So it's kind of unfair, right? right? But then the philosophers who actually work in the field, who are trying to get to the truth of things, we don't sort we don't think of ourselves as just exchanging opinions or perspectives. It's the truth. So I think because of that, sometimes we want to say that you know our work is a lot like what the scientists are doing. We're coming up with hypotheses. We're testing them using data. Mm-hmm observations. Um, But if we have a limited view of science so that it is only focused on, let's say, the material world or something like that, Mm -hmm. then we're going to lose a lot of information. We're going to lose a lot of of even the building blocks for science itself, Um, even truth, right? Like this is our topic today. You know, how do you even know what truth is? How can you even investigate it um, if you're just looking under rocks, right, yeah. for the property of being true, you know, what is that, right? <laughs> right, right. Well, and that's that's uh, something that, that Lewis talks about. He says, you know, um, it, he, he's talking about miracles in his book, Miracles. And he says, yeah. hey, look, if you bring a philosophy of fact that excludes miracles from the start, you're why even go about it? You know, we have to get to the philosophy of fact is are miracles uh, a part of your philosophy of fact? Do you, do you allow for them at all? Because mm-hmm. we need to have that conversation before we start looking at historical evidence. Um, and I yeah. don't know about before or after, you know, you get in these debates and apologetics, but I thought it was interesting. So how, how did you come to, I mean, this was, was this an adaptation of your dissertation? 
Well, it was. Yeah, and it's very interesting, Parker, because when I wrote this book, Defending the Correspondence Theory of Truth, I didn't actually believe in the correspondence theory of the huh. truth. Uh, rather, I was agnostic about it, okay. and I wanted to see if I could defend it. I wanted to analyze the best objections to the theory. Yeah, I didn't really start to tip to thinking, no, I think this is actually the right view of truth until I started teaching it in my classes. And I would illustrate the correspondence theory using examples. So I would put like a book on the table and I would ask the students, how many of you believe that that book is on the table? And they raise their hand. And then I would say, okay, is your belief true? They say, yes, it's true. Then I would pick up the book and throw it off the table dramatically, you know, like to get their <laughs> attention. <laughs> and then I would, I would ask them, how many of you still believe that it's true that the book is on the table? Their hands change. And then I begin to brag about the power that I had over the elements of their own mind, that I could change something in their mind without touching their mind. I could change its property from being true to not true. Mm. And well, why is that? Well, one analysis would be it's because truth is a relational property to the world or to reality. Um, I changed reality and that changed the truth of their beliefs. Um, so that was just one example. But as I went through all the different examples, I thought, you know, this just does seem to make sense of the nature of truth, that truth is a kind of relationship to reality. Yeah. One of the questions that comes up, and, and you can lead us where you want to go, but I imagine people will be wondering, how can you access truth hmm. if truth is based on a reality outside your awareness? Yeah. You know, this is one of the big stumbling blocks. And it's funny, too, because as I wrote this book on objections to the correspondence theory, this kind of objection from epistemology, how do you know or access truth, wasn't one of the, the biggest objections that philosophers are dealing with, mm -hmm. but it was the main one that the students would be dealing with. So I, I kind of finally figured out, okay, this is kind of like one of the important objections to think about. And I think part of the answer to that is what I was saying a moment ago, which is that you can at least see some truths within your own mind. Mm -hmm. For example, take the proposition or the thought that I'm having a feeling. Then I, let's say the feeling of curiosity. I can check the reality of curiosity within my own mind or my own experience. And then I can check the proposition or the thought. I think of a proposition as a content of a thought. Mm -hmm. so these are related. Um, so when I say a thought is true, I mean that its content is true. But, I'll, but for simplicity here, I'll just say the thought is true yeah. if what it's about um, is real. And so, if the thought that I'm having a certain feeling, a feeling of curiosity, actually describes my feeling, then I can see that accurate match, that accurate description. And this is how I get the concept of truth. Yeah. So I can verify at least some truths right within my own consciousness. And that gets us going, right? And then we can ask, well, how do you verify truths outside your consciousness? Yeah. And we, we can talk about that. But as far as how you know that there's any truth and how you can see the nature of truth, I think you can get there just by inspecting right within your own consciousness. That's awesome. Descartes would be would be proud of that one. I love that. Um, so you said you you weren't sure of it or you weren't uh, sold on correspondence until you started teaching. Yeah. It. Did you have a different? Were you like a coherentist or or did you ha just not have a, a well? Well, thought so through? I had I had some different views as options. So Trent Merricks, he's got a book, Truth and Ontology. Mm -hmm. Out of the twelve books I read on truth in graduate school, his rose to the top as the best. It's so clear. It's so insightful. Um, it's one of my favorite philosophers. And his theory is that truth is just a basic property. Okay. And that was kind of my, that was a live option for me. You know, like if you can't analyze it, 
then maybe it's just basic oh, and, yeah, sure. and unanalyzable, right? Yeah. Um, and even now, I'm, I'm still open to that, but it seems like you can analyze it as a relation to reality. And so that is defended in the book. So, so my book defends it against objections. Mm -hmm. And then what motivates the view is just that it makes sense of lots and lots of examples. Yeah. So um, before we jump in on on some more on correspondence and and the the proper difficulties and stuff like that, can can you lay out some of the, the um, uh, other theories, the, the opponents to correspondence, we got like coherence and pragmatism. Do you have those fresh in your mind? Yeah, of course. Um, so there's, it's funny when I would teach my classes, I would go through coherence and pragmatism and the students were waiting. Well, really coherentism and pragmatism, you could think of those as forms of relativism Mm -hmm. because those are theories on which truth is relative to, in the case of coherentism, um, certain basic elements within your own mind. There's different ways of cashing this out, but it's got to cohere with those basic elements within your own mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the case of pragmatism, truth is going to be relative to certain aims, practical aims. Um, there's also deflationary accounts of truth. So um, what the deflationist would say is something like, snow is white is true, if and only if snow is white. And what I've done here is I've removed truth by translating snow is white is true to something simpler, just snow is white. Mm-hmm. And the deflationist would say, well, we can do this with all truth claims. We can just um, deflate them by translating yeah. them into something simpler. And this is so like a famous for, for the audience, um, like William and Craig deflationist, right? You know, I'm not sure if he would come down into the camp. Um, he does seem to have sympathies from my conversations with him on okay. that because He's not a realist with respect to abstract objects. There's right. a certain kind of challenge in how to treat propositions. But there are other models of propositions where you don't have to treat them as abstract. If you think of them minimally uh, as truth bearers. Okay. Um, Mark Balliger, for example, treats them as sentence tokens. Mm-hmm. I think, was it Frege who treated them as classes of sentence tokens? Mm. There are some tricky issues there with how to analyze them. But yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we got deflation. Is... Um- I don't know anything really about identity theory when it comes to. to oh truth. yeah, right. Is that is it seems to me it seems close to deflationary. It's related but. to the deflationary theory, yeah. Um, so a version of it is that truth is identical to a fact. Uh-huh. Um, so if you say it is true that snow is white, uh, to say that is to say that um, the, uh, the, there's the fact that snow is white. But you're not deflating truth because you are saying truth is a real property. You're just identifying it. Hmm. There's different versions of it. So, you know, one of the things that gets tricky in metaphysics is to distinguish between reduction and elimination. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, well, I'm thinking a lot about consciousness recently, but like in con- this is one of the classic examples. Like that's you- where that's every that makes total sense to me. That's like my in into philosophy. So if you want any philosophy of mind you want to use to help. Yeah. Do you do you reduce? your conscious experiences to brain states, or do you eliminate your conscious experiences and say, no, there aren't any conscious experiences. There are just instead the brain states. There's a similar question with respect to some of these versions of truth. Like, do we reduce truth to fact or do we instead eliminate truth and sort of replace it with facts? Right. And, um, and so usually it, the debate between the eliminativists and the reductionists 
has to do with like how much of our ordinary beliefs we want to retain. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, it seems to stretch our ordinary beliefs to say, oh, there just is like no truth. Um, but maybe we can just reduce truth. So there is truth, but here's what it actually is. Okay. And we reduce it into, in terms of something more basic. Yeah. And then, so, so like primitivism is, I, th I think that's, uh, what you described earlier. That was my just, backup view. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, just it's unanalyzable. It's just a, a, a basic. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. That's, that's helpful. Did you, when you did this, uh, dissertation, who did you, you did this at Notre Dame, right? Yeah. Peter Van and Wagen. Okay. And the reason actually that I did this was I was thinking about states of affairs. Yes. Abstract states of affairs, like the state of affairs of snow being white. Mm -hmm. And I came up with this. I remember going to a restaurant and looking at a lamp. Okay. This just like shows the philosopher that I'm really, I'm a philosopher. I'm like, <laughs> I'm not thinking about my food. I'm just like looking at a lamp and I'm just staring at the lamp and thinking about its properties. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that that lamp is similar to another lamp. It seems to have the same properties. But it seems like in addition to its properties, there's a kind of structure to its properties. And so it's not just that the lamp has yellow or being a lamp. Yeah. There's a kind of organization of properties. Right. And, I, and so I began to think about maybe we can analyze abstract states of affairs as organizations of properties. And then we can think about their relationship to the world in the way that we can think of uh, atomic properties as being exemplified. We can think of states of affairs as being exemplified in terms of its parts, its, its uh, constituent parts being exemplified. So I proposed this to the dissertation committee as my theory. I want to come up with a, a uh, relational theory of abstract states of affairs. And Peter Vanewagen, he said, Josh, this sounds a lot like the correspondence theory of truth. Hmm. Instead of abstract states of affairs, you've got abstract propositions. And then it seems like what you're proposing is that what it is for these things because I wanted to say what it is for a state of affairs to obtain yeah. is for its constituent parts to be exemplified in a certain order. And so then Peter Vanderwagen suggested, well, maybe that just is the correspondence theory of truth, that what it is for a proposition to be true is for its parts, its constituent parts to be exemplified in the right way. And so that made a lot of sense to me. And I ended up giving an account of states of affairs such that they are the same thing as abstract propositions. They're basically two ways of looking at the same fundamental abstract yeah. reality. Okay, so that's that's really interesting. I think we'll just jump in because that, that's been yeah. freaky for me. So, um, you know, I got like Russell and Wittgenstein in my head as I'm looking into facts myself. And yeah. Wittgenstein's like, hey, the world is not a world of things. It's a world of facts. Yeah. It's like, well, all right, well, that's crazy. But he goes, yeah, well, look at this book. You know, it's it's written by Peter Geach or whatever, but it's read and it's it's a whole bunch of facts going. It's a whole bunch of states of affairs. It's not just one thing. And to analyze it that that way as a thing is not to to do it justice. And it freaked me out because then I'm like, there's no things anymore. We I'm left with a, a world of of states of affairs and states of affairs. We have are, things too. Oh, that's what Paul Gould told me, and it still freaks me out. Can you explain? So first of all, states of affairs are abstract. Objects? Or? Well, so it depends on your theory. So let's okay. use a concrete example. Okay. Um, in the book, I like to talk about Tibbles the cat being on the mat. Yeah, this yeah. is like the philosopher's example. Tibbles, okay? so yeah. The cat is named Tibbles, you know, just so you know, right? Like no matter where you work in the world, if you're going to talk about the philosopher's cat, <laughs> <laughs> the name is Tibbles. So Tibbles is on the mat. Now, now, some philosophers have talked about concrete states of affairs. So David Armstrong. Yeah, yeah. He would, he would say, in addition to Tibbles, in addition to the mat, 
in addition to the relation of being on uh, the mat, the on relation, there's the three combined into this structure, tibbles mm -hmm. on the mat. And I want to make sure that it's clear why there is this additional structure in addition to the mat, the cat, and the on. Mm -hmm. It's to account for the order because you could have the order reversed. You could have, instead of the cat being on the mat, you could have the mat is on the cat. Yeah. Now, and the mat is on the cat. You have the same three items, the cat, the mat, and on. So what distinguishes the mat is on the cat from the cat is on the mat? Well, Armstrong is going to say is that there is this fourth item that contains the other three as constituents, but it, but it contains them in a certain order. And this item is what we'll call a state of affairs. Mm -hmm. Now, he's thinking of these as concrete states of affairs. He's a naturalist, right? He's, he would be an, a philosophical naturalist, I yeah. believe. Um, but this theory of states of affairs is, is completely orthogonal to your view about naturalism, you, I mean, so I'm attracted oh. to his to his okay. theory, as well. Um, but but there's this additional item, this additional thing, which we could call an abstract state of affairs, which is the state of affairs of Tibbles being on the mat. Okay, let me just draw this out a bit because yeah. you might think that you can entertain the state of affairs of Tibbles being on the mat, even if Tibbles isn't actually on the mat. Uh -huh. What Armstrong is going to say is that when Tibbles gets on the mat, then there's this concrete state of affairs, Tibbles being on the mat, that's formed. Mm -hmm. But the abstract state of affairs of Tibbles being on the mat, that was already there, maybe in your mind or in Plato's yeah, heaven. But it wasn't instantiated. But it wasn't instantiated, mm -hmm. absolutely. So it didn't obtain. So it didn't obtain, it didn't correspond, You know, it wasn't true, let's say, if, yeah. if, if you want to use that term. Okay. So... Yeah. So um, I I just had glanced at Armstrong's World of State of Affairs and I I didn't know I guess I didn't read long enough. Does he allow for abstract objects? He allows for them. Uh, in fact, um, he would allow that the properties in the states of affairs are abstract. And so interesting because he's his whole conception is so interesting because oh, abstract objects for like a naturalist to me seems bonkers, but. Um, I don't, he's super smart. You'd eat my lunch if you're alive today. And uh, on well, it the depends podcast. on how you define naturalism, but usually naturalism is broad enough. Um, my sense is that most philosophers would lean towards some kind of realism with respect to properties. Okay. And um, while still being, you know, apart whether or not they're naturalists or not. Sure. Okay. Um, All right. Well, yeah. that's that, that's helpful. You stretch my my uh, imagination there. That's helpful. So um, okay. So we got. We've we've got some correspondence going on. Uh, I wanted to talk about um, your your theory that um, the like truth bearer, the proposition, is yeah. just the same as as the as the, the state abstract of state of affairs. Yeah. yeah. It, do you hold a do you have a truth maker theory? Yes. So okay. the hypo my working hypothesis uh, would be a truth maker, or at least it allows for it. Uh, let me just offer one bit of clarification here. Yeah, so please. when I say that the abstract proposition is the same as an abstract set of affairs, I say this for simplicity reason. So okay. I'm open, you know, if somebody motivates um, a distinction there, one of my friends from graduate school, he, his dissertation was on states of affairs huh. and he thought that we can motivate a distinction between propositions and states of affairs from observations about our use of language. Mm -hmm. And I am open to that. But other things being equal, I like to simplify my ontology. And so 
Um, I wasn't really persuaded by his argument from language, but nothing in my theory about of correspondence turns on this. Okay. So I want to make sure that's clear. You know, I'm not wedded to these being the same. Yeah. But basically my theory of propositions is that they're built up out of more basic components, um, properties, or perhaps concepts, depending on your theory of properties. Yeah. And so I have a structural account of propositions. Okay. Yeah. And uh, then, and then as far as truth makers go, yeah. the idea would be, so this is going to take us back to facts. Mm -hmm. um, so it, this is difficult stuff. It, it might be dry on some level, but it's so important because if once we make these distinctions, we yeah. empower us to think so much more carefully about this. We Amen. give ourselves more resources. So, so I want to just like draw a few more distinctions here in the popular sphere. I know that when people use the term fact, they have in mind a kind of epistemic notion. Yeah. Usually what they mean is that it's established. It's mm -hmm. an established fact. That's kind it's of what they mean. Scientific fact. Yeah. Right. The scientific fact. Yeah. yeah. It's not a philosopher's fact. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I always like think about that. You know, no philosophers, we don't establish facts. Only scientists do, but that's the <laughs> epistemic notion of fact. If you look at the Stanford Encyclopedia entry on facts, you'll see that a way that philosophers use the term fact is not, we're not building in the epistemic notion, but instead we're thinking of a fact as that which makes a proposition true. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that structure in the world of Tibbles being on the mat makes the proposition that Tibbles is on the mat true. Then that structure counts as a fact. In my book, The Correspondence Theory, I define a fact minimally as just whatever it is that a true proposition corresponds to. Yeah. And there I even leave open whether the object of correspondence makes the proposition true. Okay. There's another little subtle distinction there, but yeah. there's some wiggle room to think that a proposition, a proposition corresponds to a fact, even if the fact doesn't make or ground or determine that the proposition is true. It's just... Rather, there's just a kind of relation there. It's not a grounding relation. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm happy to say that it's a grounding relation myself. Oh, great. Okay, cool. I, I think that too. And I think that's because C.S. Lewis got in early and he, he has this quote that people always share around, uh, truth is always about something, but reality is, a, is that which... About that about which truth is is yeah, yeah beautiful yeah. beautiful and it's and yeah. it's like it's a truth maker uh, statement it's that yeah this the the reality is the facts or um, that's the big problem reality is it one fact or is it a bunch of facts and Donald Davidson got in there and kind of yeah, threw well, me for threw a wrench in my mind and so that's where I, your your work's been really helpful but yeah so uh, I was already predisposed to the the truth maker theory um, and it it doesn't seem to me that it's even like it would be contentious, but then I, you know, you start reading some philosophers and it, it gets contentious, but some people would say it seems superfluous to say there are propositions and there, which are abstract. And then there's also these abstract state of affairs, which obtain, and when they obtain their fact, and when they don't obtain, it's, it's not a fact, or maybe it's a, depending on if you hold to possible worlds, it's a near or far possible world. So it, it seems like we might end up with the same problem that they have in, in hermeneutics of the hermeneutical, um, circle which never gets to the truth and so if propositions are abstract and states of affairs to which they correspond or make them true are abstract then it seems like we never get to the concrete so mm -hmm. help me with this how do we how do we deal with that well, it's funny the terms abstract and concrete are also kind of slip slippery terms yeah um and and i've noticed that 
philosophers have intuitions that diverge from people in the, I, I have this phrase, the people in the popular sphere, you know, they, they sort of help ground me sure. to know how to speak ordinary language. Okay. And my students helped me with this. So I discovered for my students that um, if, if there's a structure that has a property built within it, mm-hmm. so for example, the structure of a cat being on a mat, mm-hmm. where being on is a property, but it also has the cat in it, a concrete thing, the students will call that structure abstract. Uh, whereas the philosophers will say, well, as long as it has something concrete in it, then we're going to call it concrete. So mm. I don't, I don't know. I mean, maybe okay. you could think of it as concrete if it has some causal power. Um, these are slippery terms, okay. but if, but, but just, I think it does help to focus on the examples because then we are looking at reality. We can label them however we want to. So once we think of the examples, so things things get clear. So think of the cat on the mat, mm-hmm. and then imagine that in addition to the cat, in addition to the mat, and in addition to the on relation. There's this structure that contains the mat and the cat together, and it's an ordered structure. So that structure exists if and only if that cat is actually on the mat. Um, so on that on that account, the proposition that the cat is on the mat corresponds to that structure. Yeah, yeah, that's the idea. Okay, because it's because the proposition is about that structure, and that structure exists. And that structure contains. Uh... Concreta, so absolutely. So we got to the concrete thing. So it has some concrete in it. Yeah, okay. that's yeah. So it's not all purely abstract. Okay, correct. Man, that's so helpful because you learn enough just to be freaked out and then just to be <laughs> confused. Right? Yeah, yeah. Man, that's really helpful. So, so um, another uh, another influential work for for me and probably for a lot of people is uh, William Austin's A Realist Conception of Truth. Yeah, that was a good um, one too. And I, I wonder how how closely do you follow him there do, do you remember i know this is way back in like 2014 or even further before that well um you know try a question we'll see if i can remember well, well so so he says um and i think planning might say this as well that facts are obtaining states of affairs uh, oh yeah do, right do, do you follow that do you agree with that or what do you think what are facts so in my book um i say that facts are more than that because okay. here's the difficulty um, now my, my current views, see, the thing is, is that I'm not really sure if I need all the metaphysics. Part of this book was sort of an experiment and sure. giving an analysis of everything. So yeah. I give an analysis of facts. I give an analysis of truth, you know, right. even, even where Bertrand Russell takes it so far. And then there's all these criticism in the literature and then the philosophers say, oh, you can't give an analysis. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. And then I'm like, well, we can still try. Right. Yeah. And in fact, there was this one thing where somebody on my dissertation committee, um, a philosopher said that she didn't think it was possible to give an analysis of what I was going to give an analysis of that. I was going to try to give an analysis. And she said she would bet her whole bank on it, all oh. the money in her bank. Right. <laughs> And so then I was like, well, I've got to do this, right? So yeah. I came up with this analysis and I sent her an email. I was like, see, I think I did it. And we went back and forth. She's like, all right, well, I guess, I guess you did it, right? <laughs> now, whether the analysis is true, that's a whole other thing. But the right. experiment was to see, could I give an analysis that is at least um, consistent with all the data, right? Yeah. And it analyzes these things in terms of more basic logical relations that was the goal did you so, did you get her whole bank account by the way so, like, so she said she so i did tease her about that she's like oh i was joking and i wasn't really <laughs> serious i was like all right yeah <laughs> but um so so i want to just say that so i'm going to give you my theories my analyses mm-hmm. but i don't think that 
Well, certainly the correspondence theory isn't wedded to these analyses. Right. It might be that the correspondence relation is a primitive relation, okay. um, but I do have an analysis. So, so um, this is kind of a working hypothesis. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. So basically the, the basic analysis that I have is that um, a proposition is a complex, an ordered complex of properties. And then a proposition is true if and only if, and I have sort of a complex analysis, a way of spelling out all the terms, but the gist of it is that each of the properties that are contained in the proposition are exemplified and according to the order specified by the proposition. Mm -hmm. The complex part of the analysis is to analyze what it means to be in according to the order yeah. specified by the proposition. And I yeah. offer that in terms of entailment relations. Okay. And that, that you, you stressed the importance of that earlier in that Tibbles is not underneath the mat, right? And that's really yes, important for order to, matters. Yeah. yeah. That's really interesting. So that's, I believe that's, uh, so Stephen, Stephen Neal, uh, facing facts. When I was looking into facts, it was like this book and, and the SCP article and a couple others. Yeah. That this book was so expensive. I couldn't afford anything <laughs> else, but he, he talked about that and he said, in order to avoid the, um, slingshot argument you need a, an analysis of facts and and yeah. that's possible but it's really hard so that's really interesting that that you gave an analysis of it because that was one of the conditions he said yeah 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 and before we get there actually just to go back to mm -hmm. the account of of the obtaining state of affairs because yeah. i talk about this I, I think you if you remember in one of the chapters where and i remember talking with peter vanewagen about this in particular and he had these long comments where he was saying okay josh is this what you're saying and he had it all expressed very beautifully. I'm like, yeah, that's what I'm saying. You got <laughs> it. <laughs> but it was basically that um, the mystery. So, so if you exchange the mystery of truth mm -hmm. for the mystery of obtaining, so you say what it is for a proposition to be true mm -hmm. is to correspond uh, or to be <laughs> yeah. uh, a state of affairs that obtains or a fact that obtains. Then the question is, well, what is it to obtain? And I took it that the mystery of obtaining and the mystery of truth were sort of basically structurally the same. Mm -hmm. In fact, my whole account was that abstract propositions and abstract states affairs um, and abstract facts, we could call them, mm -hmm. um, are the same. Those are just different ways of describing the same basic reality. Yeah. Um, and so if that's right, then obtaining truth, those are actually the same thing. Those are the same thing. So. Um, I want to give an account of obtaining. Yeah. So that that's why I want to say more. It's not even that I want to disagree. It's not that I'm disagreeing. I remember planting a, he was on my dissertation committee and he asked me some questions about um, the deflationary theory of truth. And, and, and my response to him was to say, well, I don't actually disagree with what the deflationists are saying there. It's just that I'm saying more than that. Yeah. And I, and I think there's a reason that, we have motivation to say more because um, if we say more, we can actually give a deeper analysis of what these things are. If you just say Tibbles is on the mat is true, if and only if the state of affairs that Tibbles is on the mat obtains, okay, but what is it to obtain? Right? So I want to say right. well, what it is to obtain is for the constituent affairs to be exemplified in the right way by the actual concrete reality, yeah. the structure in reality. Okay, so so Josh, does that mean um, does that commit you to uh, the existence of possible worlds? So, is there like a close possible world where Tibbles is 
uh, right off the mat or something like that. And that one's not obtained. That's not instantiated. Therefore, it's not uh, obtaining, not a fact and not true. Uh, does, just to clarify. So um, what is it that is supposed to commit us to possible worlds? Well, um, because you have this instantiation uh, of a con- of an abstract state of affairs, does that mean that it... it oh, oh, do abstract states of affairs require possible worlds? Uh, mm-hmm. No. So okay. um, it, now you might think of a possible world as a maximally big abstract state of affairs. Yeah, right. So it's sort of convenient, like if you have abstract state of affair, states of affairs in your ontology, then you can build up the possible worlds out of them. Yeah. But it's not required. I mean, you might have worries about whether whether you can build up something as big as a maximal state of affairs. Okay. Uh, so you don't need possible worlds to have abstract states of affairs in your okay. ontology. Yeah. Okay. Good, yeah, good, very good question. Yeah. This this is so good, man. I've been thinking about, I've been needing, I, this was yeah, also see, I'm one. trying to free your mind from these yeah, extraneous it's, it's so objections helpful. so that you can, you can clear away the rubble. <laughs> That's right. That distracts you and gets you all worried. Like, That's no, right. All you need, all you need is this, right? Yeah. I mean, you don't yeah. even need abstract states of affairs. Like, honestly, you can run my structural account in terms of, in terms of thoughts, which you could think of as organizations of concepts. Yeah. I was, I've been thinking that William Lane Craig might like this because, right, he wants to shave off the abstracta. And maybe if he has a concretist view of thoughts, then he could think of thoughts as the primary bearers of truth. Yeah. See, I, I like abstracta though. I, I want to, I want to push that, but, <laughs> but that. because that, that one freaks me out that if it's just thoughts, then I think. Well, how, and you, how can you and I have like matter. the same thought, right? Like if yeah. you think that snow is white and I think that snow is white, how can we even communicate yeah. unless there's something in common between our thoughts? Right. 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 So I have that communication argument in, in the book as well. Okay. That book, yeah. that, that's going to be awesome. I think uh, I was talking with Cameron uh, Bertuzzi about this and he was saying how, how excited you are about the consciousness and um, dude, I'm, I'm ready for it. I'm, I'm so pumped. Uh, I even regret having you on cause I'm keeping you away from, from your work on this. Oh no, Maybe we'll have to come. But... I'll have to come on again and talk about consciousness. With yeah. you. It's all related deeply to truth though, because yes, I mean, I, I've just, was just writing this chapter just this week on thoughts thoughts being an element of consciousness mm-hmm. and then truth being a property of thoughts. Yeah. I mean, in, even if you believe truth is primarily a property of propositions, which are contents of thoughts, uh-huh. still the idea is that this property of truth is connected to, to an element of a thought, namely its content. And so my goodness, it's like when you're talking about these very basic things that we think are so familiar that we just take for granted People are debating, you know, what's true? What's true? Right. And yet the familiar is not insignificant. I mean, it's so significant that within your own consciousness, there's this aspect or property called truth. Yeah. And it's not a shape. It's not a color. It's not, you know, there's no analysis of it yeah. in terms of anything material. Yeah. Um, and, and I actually want to be very bold about this. Like, it's not a material thing. I mean, this is not something you have to guess about. I mean, you can see it's not material directly by considering your consciousness, Unless you have a definition of material that allows, well, that, I mean, I, I sort of lose my grip on what people mean by material sometimes if you just yeah. allow everything, right? But uh, it's yeah. not analyzable in terms of the kinds of structures that we find in brain states yeah. that scientists are studying, neuroscientists are studying. It's something else entirely. Well, that's the, the fact that we can think about truth and that our, our thoughts can correspond to reality. That It's insane if you think about it. And I, yeah. um, I heard, you know, Gordon Clark, I read him a while, long time ago, and he was talking about Augustine's argument from truth for God. And um, yeah. I, I don't know if it works or not, but it was just so interesting to think that like, wow, these, 
I believe in God. God has these thoughts and God, you know, instantiates, he makes his thoughts into reality. And then I get to have those, I think about that reality in here. And I get to grasp that truth. Yeah. And it's, it's a real privilege to actually have a thought that's true, but we take it for granted every second. Yeah, that you can grasp within your own mind these abstract elements. Yeah. And that some of these elements are shared. So, for example, when we think about logical principles, mm-hmm. like anything that is true is true. Okay? Is that true? <laughs> well, <laughs> it's so so obviously true that it's almost like, hey, what are you even asking? Yeah. Right. I just used an obvious example. But that's something that's true. And it's true whether you're thinking about it or not. Yeah. You know, and so when you're when you are thinking about it, it's like basically my understanding is that you're having contact with a reality that's within your mind, but it also transcends your mind. Yes. So what's within your mind is this logical principle and you see that it's true, but it's also transcending your mind because you see not only that it's true, but that it's truth doesn't depend on your mind. That's mm-hmm. one of the truths that you see within your mind. Yeah. You, you get that you see within your own mind truths that don't depend on your mind. This, by the way, is one of the ways you get outside of your, your mind. This is one of the ways you can, I think, be clear you don't even have to guess about it um that you can be clear that there are truths external to your consciousness yeah because it's actually part of the things within your consciousness uh the the, the logical principles within your consciousness that those very principles don't depend on your consciousness right and so then you deduce that oh well then these very principles that i'm seeing right within my mind also transcend my mind And that's how we can communicate. Like, so you and I are seeing some common realities. They're abstract Mm -hmm. realities, like the principle that two plus two equals four. We're seeing that together. You have your thought about it. I've got my thought. Those thoughts are like windows to a common reality. Yeah. And it's just, yeah, we write that on the board and teach that to a kid and then move on kid and we'll teach you something else. It's like, wow, dude, it's just when you take some time to think about, well, this is why I like your work because some people might say, yeah, you know, co- correspondence theory of truth, of course, whatever, we're done with those conversations. And it's like, no, dude, let's let's open this up. What do you mean? Because there's different co- correspondence theories and there's all this yeah. other stuff. And when what I find most interesting is that when you look at it more and if you're a believer like like we are, it opens up your mind to God and how insane this world really is and how cool it is that he made us in his image to actually think his thoughts after him. And Tibbles doesn't get to think about these kind of things, you know. Maybe he will. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe. Not in his current state, right? Yeah. But yeah, the, the world has all these treasures. Mm-hmm. I think about this a lot, you know, that that things that are so familiar to us, it's like we don't realize how amazing they are. We mm-hmm. sort of look externally to always acquire something new, right. maybe a new car, new house, or whatever. But that no matter how much value these things we're trying to acquire are, there are th- things that we already have direct access to mm-hmm. that when you just think about them, it's like, wow, thoughts, truth. Uh, wow. These things are real, you know, mm-hmm. and, and whatever your view is, whatever your worldview is, whether you're a naturalist or you think fundamental reality has a supreme nature or whatever it is to see that reality isn't just reducible merely to shapes or to motions or yeah. to chemical reactions that really opens things up. I think for a lot of people, yeah. To just to even be curious to see, to see more. Seriously. You know, and this is not, because I really want to emphasize, this is not like a debate between religion and scientists. I mean, this is something that secular philosophers from a wide range of viewpoints yeah. are analyzing. I, I believe the correspondence theory, last I checked, was a majority view among philosophers. Um, and realism with respect to properties and abstracta, as I said, is also, I think the 
the more dominant position. I don't know if it's a majority, but I think compared to the other views, philosophers are very sympathetic with that. And I think that happens from studying it. I mean, a lot of philosophers, myself among them, we didn't like start off believing in these um, abstract things or in properties or um, in these sort of deeper analyses. But when you start just paying attention to them and thinking, okay, well, what is this? You open up the hood and you see, okay, this car has been running. So there's an engine in here. You start taking it apart. And it's like, oh my goodness. Wow. This is amazing. This is beautiful. What else is in here? Yeah. Yeah, man. Hey, man. That's so I'm getting all excited here, but uh, yeah, me too. <laughs> I, I I have to go back. I have to uh, bring up some objections because I these have it. also been kind of torturing me too. But um, just one last plug for just truth in general. Uh, Jordan Peterson had this really long conversation with Sam Harris. I saw was, that. That there, was very fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, are you talking? About, there, they had a few, but there was one on on Peterson's truth. view of truth. Yeah. Yep. Saw I saw that one. Yeah. I yeah, was listening and, to that one. And everyone yeah. said, this is so pedantic, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, this is finally like the good stuff. Holy cow. Oh, yeah. We're finally getting down to it because Peterson's trying to be a consistent pragmatist. And yep. if all my philosopher friends, they all go, dude, pragmatism's so out. Don't even worry about it. And it's like, I don't care if it's out or not in the, in the academy. Um, Peterson just got a million views on this video. And now all these students that I work with, I'm a campus minister myself. They're talking to me about pragmatism. Hey, yeah. maybe what's truth is what helps us survive. Well, Pearson and- did a beautiful, a beautiful job in that exchange. Yeah. And actually what I want to say, and I, I really feel like I learned this from my students, is that mm-hmm. I think there are different notions of truth. Okay. So when what I mean by this is that um, that there are different concepts. There's a cluster of concepts. And that there it might be acceptable in certain contexts to think of a certain concept of truth that some people are grabbing onto in certain contexts as being analyzable in terms of practical ends. Yeah. Okay. This is the friendly thing. I want. This is kind of the inclusive thing I want to say, because sure. even if we recognize a kind of pragmatic um, property that's interesting and desirable, because I think this is what it is for Peterson is he wants stuff. He wants to get at the things that are actually going to matter in the end. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If there is this other property of truth, that's not analyzable in terms of practical ends, like why care about it? Okay. Sure. Um, so he's interested in, in he's interested in this sort of pragmatic property. And then it's like, we can maybe call that truth because people care about truth. But even if that's the case, and I just want to emphasize this, like, even if there is this important property, and even if we could legitimately call it truth. Yeah. Okay. I mean, to me, I don't really care what you call it. Mm-hmm. There's still this other property. There's still this other relation that connects between propositions and what those propositions are about. Yeah. Going back to the example of when I put a book on the desk and I asked my students, okay, do you believe the book is on the desk? Your belief has a certain property of truth. Now I remove the book. I've changed your belief. And it doesn't matter whether the belief was practical for you or not. Mm-hmm. There is just this relation of matching with reality. Yeah. And so, and I actually think that this notion of truth the reason why it's maybe a little bit difficult to tease it apart from pragmatism sometimes is that it is deeply practical to think of truth as related to reality. Because if you don't and you cross the street, you get hit by a car. And <laughs> yeah. Now, yeah. Right. Yeah. But these things can come apart. I mean, it can be that there are some truths. One of the examples I like to give my students is consider whether the number of protons in the universe is even or not even. Mm. Well, one of those is true. Yeah, right. Okay, but there's just probably no way to verify which one is true. And there's no really utility or practical application of believing one or over the other. But just by the law of non-contradiction, they can't both be true. Yeah, And it seems like one of them has to be true by the law of bivalence. And so 
Um, so I do think there is this notion of correspondence that yeah. is important and it's not necessarily just analyzable in terms of practical ends. That This is what I would have brought up. If I was talking with Jordan Peterson, I would have talked about some of these exceptional cases where you don't really have a practical analysis of them. And yet there's an answer. And yet there is a truth of the matter. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's so great. It, it reminds me a little bit, so may, maybe even there's a perspectivalism going on that there's, I, I think of uh, like John Frame has a, a norm situation and existential perspective. And so like their truth ought to cohere with itself. So there's something that the coherentists I think are yeah. probably getting right. I, I don't think there should be holes in in truth that, nope, just that's the way the world is. They don't, it doesn't, this proposition doesn't correspond with this one. I think truth is going to cohere with itself and it, ought to correspond with reality and it ought to be livable because if we live in reality, then we, there ought to be a practical application, even if each of those perspectives alone is not the full picture or something like that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I think a lot of the motivation for kind of perspectival theory of truth is this epistemological worry of like, how do you get out of your own perspective? Right. I think part of it, just one little key, <clears throat> one little key and Instead of me trying to use the key to unlock every door, it's almost like I just want to like give you the key. Right, it's just right. this distinction between something being um, in your mind and being of of your mind, right? So like you can have a thought that let's say the thought that I'm having a feeling that's in my mind and it's of my mind. It's of something in my in my experience. Yeah, but the thought that something outside my mind caused my feeling, that thought is also in my mind, but it's not of right. my mind. And it's something beyond my mind. Um, and so then the question is, well, how do you verify it? But I do think that you can make an argument, maybe to the best explanation of your experiences, that there is something outside your mind that caused yeah. them. Um, but that distinction between being in your mind and of your mind, I think, is sometimes lost. Yeah, uh, I've discovered just from many conversations. So I think that's just an important, it doesn't solve everything, it doesn't unlock every door. But it does unlock some, I think, for people. Just that is in your mind, point. but not of your mind. I really like that. Yeah. Well, so that that kind of brings us to um, the doorstep, at least of, of a first objection. I want to think about which comes from like Rorty and Davidson, who who don't like representationalism, any form of it. And so, yeah. uh, correspondence theory is a rep form of representationalism, and and they say it, it opens this door to skepticism and relativism because you have a, a conceptual scheme, and then you have the empirical content, and it seems like the the bridge between those is is uh, correspondence and how do we know if it's reaching right? It's the, it's the right, yeah. epistemological concern. So what what do you make of that? I mean, we so I, I, we we have talked about it. I want to go back to the clear. Um, I think the way to make progress in philosophy is to look for the clearest thing you can find first. Okay, and then let that be a flashlight. I really can't overemphasize the value of this principle. Really, the clearest thing because I think philosophers we like to rush to what's unclear because that's where we go to the edge of our thinking interesting yeah right. and there's almost this feeling like like if it's too clear then it's not like philosophical enough or right. something it like sure, doesn't sure. count but yeah. i find that if you can like focus on the clearest cases um it can be surprising sometimes where the light of the clear can lead and then what was otherwise unclear becomes clear so just going back to example an example that is clear to me is um propositions about some of the contents of my own mind. So I'm feeling right now, I'm feeling happy. Okay. I'm just happy to be with you. Now I'm not lying about that. Oh, nice. um, and I, and I can verify that because here's how I can verify it. I'm aware of my thought that I'm happy. I'm also aware of my state of happiness. And then I'm aware that the thought is true with respect to its description. It's, it's an accurate description of my happiness. 
um, I'm, I'm, how, how can I put this? I'm aware of the match between my thought that I'm happy and my being happy. And I just call that match correspondence. So I'm starting with this clear example of something where I, I think I can check both sides because they're both in my consciousness. I can check both sides of the correspondence relation, both the thought side and then the reality side. Both are within my consciousness. I can see them clearly and directly. So that's the first thing. So that that gets me at least to a minimal uh, correspondence. Mm-hmm. Now you might be worried, well, you know, how do you get to the external world? Very, very quickly, my, here's just a sketch of my theory. Okay. I think that within my mind, I'm also aware of probability relations okay. between explanations of my consciousness and my consciousness. So for example, there's an explanation of my current set of experiences in terms of causes of those experiences. And I take myself to be aware that that explanation is more likely than than that those experiences have no cause. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this leads me to think that it's probable that within reality, outside my consciousness, there's elements that cause my consciousness. Hmm. Okay. Um, And it's by inference that I see within my consciousness. So this goes back to it's the difference between being in my mind and of my mind. So there's some some things I'm seeing right within my mind, Mm -hmm. but they're actually pointers to things outside my mind. Yeah. So I'm seeing within my mind, these pointers to things outside my mind that, that, and these are probability pointers that lead me to think that probably there's a reality outside my mind that, that, um, that this thought corresponds to. So, and I just want to make sure it's very clear that the way that I grasp the concept of correspondence is I think by first witnessing examples of correspondence clearly within my own consciousness. Yeah. Matching with my feelings, et cetera. But once I have the concept, now I can apply that concept to things outside my consciousness. Yeah. And I have these probabilistic arguments for thinking that there are these things outside my consciousness. That's a really helpful point. So you're not you're not begging the question and starting from the outside. Yeah, I got correspondence. It looks like correspondence. And so then someone says, hey, well, what if you're a brain in a vet? And you don't say, well, I'm certainly not, but probably I'm not. You know, and, I'm probably not, you know, yeah. but I might be. And the thing is, is that the answer that I just gave you, it, it satisfies me because I don't like it when people give a kind of Morian response and just say, well, I've got two hands or they give a theory of knowledge that just says, well, as long as my belief is produced by a properly functioning system, then it counts as knowledge. And it's like, okay, but that's fine. I mean, it would count as knowledge if it was produced by a properly functioning system. But you don't know that though. You're like, how do I know? I know. I know. But see, but then the response to that is that, well, as long as you believe that your belief is produced by a properly yeah, the, functioning system. The brain and the that belief was produced right. by, then it right. counts as knowledge, you know, but it's like, yeah. okay, fine, fine. <laughs> I have this high standard. This is a kind of internalist direct awareness sure, standard sure. that I want. And so all my analyses, this is, this goes back to the spirit of my book. Like, like yeah, maybe these things are basic. Maybe they're primitive. Maybe there's no analysis, but yeah. like, I want to dig as deep as possible. And doing this has led me to some accounts of things that frankly, I see a lot of philosophers debating today um, because some of these accounts are not in view. Hmm. Some of them are in view. I've published them. Um, and I'm not saying that I've solved all these different problems or whatever, but like yeah. I've, there are some solutions that I have that just, they satisfy me. And I see the philosophers debate. I'm like, okay, look, I have an account of that. I have an account of how you get to the external world. Hmm. I have an account. Like when, when people are saying, okay, your, your theory of truth needs to show us how to get to the external world. A lot, sometimes the response is to change the game. Mm-hmm. And to say, well, we don't need to go through all the hoops that you're giving us. 
but actually I don't want to change the game. I want to go through all your hoops. I want to give you the analysis. I want to show you on your own terms yeah. how you can be aware of all the elements. So that's been my project. Well, so that that's what remind it seems like a souped up um Descartes move, right? Like you start with kind of the, the cogito of like, hey, you know, I have this awareness and I'm aware of my thoughts and I think that I I think that I feel this way. And then you you have the correspondence relation and now I get to move out because and I like that. Yeah. yeah. It, it, you have to be careful with that term because, you know, a lot of philosophers, they hear that term. It's like, yeah, that was a failed project. Yeah. You know, that's wrong, impossible. Man. And it's like, but no, you're right. That's, you're absolutely right, Parker. Um, you're right on that. It's very much Cartesian and it's sympathies. It's like, well, let's see what we can do here. Yeah. That's great. I love yeah. that. It's and, and you don't have to do it. It's not like sure. you have to be certain sure. or you have sure. to be able to build everything out sure. like that. But if you can, hey, that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's super cool. That, that's why people say you pff, armchair stuff. Let's see. I want to sit in the armchair. Let's see what we can figure out. I love out. armchair philosophy. <laughs> so yes. good. Math man. is done from the armchair. That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Gets, well, okay. <laughs> it gets me fired up. But let's, let's, uh, another one is uh, negative facts. And, and I tossed in non existence. Maybe that was part of it too. But um, Davidson calls them, uh, f- I think this is what he re- refers to as funny facts. Yeah, the funny facts. Yeah. And, and, uh, and Merrick's, yeah. I think Merrick's, Talks about no, like the fact that there are no unicorns, right? Yeah. Have you have you read Merrick's book, Truth on? No, I just just from from your work, from my work, yeah. And then Marion David, he was actually I TA for him at Notre Dame. He was at Notre Dame, and then I saw his entry on the Stanford Encyclopedia, and I was like, oh, you know, I just TA for this guy, and he's the the author of this entry. Yeah. And so I got the term funny facts from him. I thought that was a nice way of describing. So these are things that it's like, well, you know, that there are no unicorns. Uh, you know, if, if the proposition that there are no unicorns is true, then that should correspond to something. There's got to be some fact in the world, some concrete reality out there that makes yep. it true. But what kind of reality could make that true? Mm-hmm. And it's funny, just going back to the difference between philosophers and just like everybody else, like the popular <laughs> sphere, because I feel like everybody else sort of grounds us. And the philosophers, they work through all these very sophisticated uh, possibilities like there's this, uh, I think as Davidson talks about this totality fact yeah, that yeah, maybe could fact. ground, there are no unicorns, you know. But I ask my students this question, you know, what do you think to the answer? And every single semester I ask this question, there's always a student who says, well, maybe it's just a lack of reality mm-hmm. that grounds okay. this, a lack of reality. And I like always want to clap because, well, that's the basically a way of putting the theory that I give in my book, which is that there's, there is a real lack um, the way I put it is in terms of the lacking of, um, well, it depends on the case, but the lacking of truth or the lacking of exemplification. So if it's a unicorn, it's the lacking of exemplification of being a unicorn. Mm-hmm. Um, and I say that these lacks are themselves, they themselves comprise structures in reality and that true propositions correspond to them. The structure of the lack. So it's, it kind of reminds me of like a, a privationist kind of view. Yeah. That's, um, yeah. But so in my head, it makes a lot of sense to me if this and if this analogy works. Uh, I think of like little kids and they take a star and they match it into the hole. It looks like a star. And yeah. so you've got the world that the instantiated world, the the great fact, whatever it is. Um, and there's a hole where the unicorn slot would be instantiated. Right. And so that's yeah. the that's the structure and the proposition. There are no unicorns. The fact that there are no unicorns is that there's no uh, instantiated, you know, slot in the unicorn hole. Yeah, it's sort of like the, the the existence of that hole or the lacking of that hole being filled or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Way. Yeah, I love that. That's a good metaphor. Okay, yeah. nice. All right, we did. Yeah, it. and I do make it precise in terms of properties being exemplified, mm-hmm. or you could do it in terms of concepts. Um, I should say 
lacking exemplification. Yeah. Yeah. It was funny because Trenton Merrick's, he, um, I wrote out my account and then, and then I read his book and he actually describes my account, but the way he describes it, he says, this is an account that's not in print. So it's like, well, it's going in print now, you know, (laughs) he has some criticism. So I sent him an email about that. I was like, okay, Trent, like (laughs) Trenton, like I'm, I'm developing this account. Yeah. That's so good. Well, yeah. So So, I I don't want to suggest that the, the correspondence theory is wedded to this particular account. Sure. Um, I mean, you can be a correspondence theory and theorist and you could think that negative truths don't correspond. uh, Well, so one version, I I don't, this isn't my favorite view, but one version is the, when you say that there are no unicorns, um, that's true because it's negation fails to correspond to reality. So there are unicorns Uh fails to correspond to reality. Yeah. And, and so, and that, um, and oh, that yeah. okay. way of, just the flip side of it. Yeah. You just flip it around. Yeah. Um, I don't, I mean, that's not my favorite view because on that view, you can't just have the simple account that truth is correspondence. Okay. Um, because th- that gives you a more complex analysis and I, I would prefer a simpler theory if I can get away with it. Okay. But Hey, you know, if, if you can't get away with a simpler theory, then you just go for the next best one. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Well, I like yours, man. I, uh, as much as I can, I'm just going to propagandize your views and put them out there and make everyone think that that's, that's the, the, uh, well, don't do that. Part. I need pushback. That's, that's what helps my mind expand. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so a related, a related, uh, study or field, whatever you, you brought up concepts. Uh, I had Mark Sainsbury on to talk about like concepts, uh, cause he wrote this book, um, on non-existence. And so it's interesting to think that we can have a concept of something that doesn't exist yeah. Like, what does that concept refer to? And it's really similar. It's actually just like this. You're just talking about more maybe the objective where the concept yeah. will be more subjective. How do you, how is it possible that we can think of a unicorn? Do we just take a horse and stick a narwhal tusk <laughs> on it or something? Yeah, right. I mean, there's this puzzle of aboutness or um, ofness. Yeah. How can ofness attach to things that don't exist? I actually was just writing about this oh, coincidentally sweet. on my theory of, uh, consciousness because I was talking about aboutness mm-hmm. as being an aspect of thoughts. Mm-hmm. And I think it's actually helpful to make a distinction between two kinds of aboutness. One okay. would be a kind of externalist notion where the there, there's an actual relation between the thing and then what it's about. Uh-huh. And then the other would be kind of more of an internalist where you can see what it's about just by seeing it's the contents within it. So an example will help. Um, there are no unicorns. Um, oh, let's do fictional character. Uh, yeah, yeah. Say. Bilbo Baggins, because yeah. I always do that. I always do Bilbo Baggins with all my guests. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, um, so you take this fictional character and then and then you can ask, um, okay, well, what are you thinking about there? And it's like, well, you're thinking about something. Uh-huh. You might even like the character. Yep. How can you like something that's not even there? Right. right. Um, now, on the externalist notion of about, you're not actually, strictly speaking, thinking about something. Because there isn't something there, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. But that leaves open this other notion of about where it's it's more internal to the proposition itself or the thought itself. Mm-hmm. And I give an analysis of this in my uh, theory of aboutness. I think I've got a chapter on propositions where I, I give a theory of aboutness. And my analysis is to analyze aboutness in terms of properties that are unique to the thing that it's about. Okay. So... Um, if I have a thought that there are no hobbits, then 
that thought will be about hobbits because it includes some properties that are unique to hobbits. Mm -hmm. The properties are real. The thought isn't about the properties. It contains the properties, but it's about that which those properties uh, would, it, it's about whatever would instantiate those properties if there were such a thing. Yeah. Yeah. If if there were such things. So you're not like quantifying over Bilbo Baggins. That's it's, right. So it's not a relation in that case. Okay. It's not a real relation between existing things. So it's not externalist aboutness, but it's a kind of internal aboutness analyzed in terms of more basic relations between properties. Okay. And does that does make the, sense? It, it does, but I'm wondering about the property of like about. hobbitness. <laughs> about, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah. About hobbits uh, or hobbitness. Is there a property that Bilbo has that's, you know, Bilbo, yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. And it's, yes. but it's, but it's not instantiated in the, in the real world. It's a state of affairs, but and you, you can think of it as a, either as a concept or, I mean, th this gets into the ontology of abstract objects again, right? Yeah, sure. I like to be minimal and as inclusive as possible, but okay. let me, let me just go into a particular version just to illustrate. So let's say that you think that this property is an abstract entity that exists, even if it's not instantiated. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a platonic object. Okay. Um, yeah. So that that's how, how it works. It doesn't have to be instantiated for it to exist. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's what James Anderson gave me that one too. And, and said, so, so then there's like, there's a middle earth. That's a possible world that just is not, it, it's only picked out in fiction in this possible world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the story exists, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, we can think about the story. And so, the story happens to have the property being false because it doesn't correspond yep. to elements of the world, but the story contains things. It yeah. contains propositions. I say it contains properties. This is why I think it is helpful to have a structural account of propositions in terms of more basic elements like properties mm -hmm. or concepts, because then you can distinguish the parts of a story. Yeah. This is the part where um, Trent Merrick's view, it's a bit difficult for me because uh, for him, he doesn't have this kind of analysis of propositions. As far as I know, I mean, unless he's, I know he's got a book on propositions and I have read that book and I don't recall him having an analysis of propositions that are built up out of properties. But then, mm -hmm. but then this does lead to a question for me. He's like, well, how do we distinguish um, these different abstract fictions yeah. and their, and their elements? It seems like we can pick out the different parts of them. Yeah. Just real quick, do uh, something that, that Swinburne wrote in his one of his most recent books, "Are We Bodies or Souls?" And he talked about how properties don't exist without a substance to instead instantiate them. Mm -hmm, Just mm -hmm. not, on your view, do, are there free flowing properties out there? Oh goodness! Um, <laughs> so I, I, for most of my philosophical career, I've been a, a Platonist. Okay. Uh, about a year or so ago, I've taken a turn. Oh no! Based on <laughs> oh no, yeah. <laughs> Uh, certain paradoxes um, in my book, How Reason Can Lead to God, I briefly point to to something having to do with the paradox of propositions that leads me to think that that not all abstract objects just exist independently. Okay. Um, and so then I began thinking more about how I could have a uniform view of abstracta where they're all actually dependent. Uh -huh. And so my latest uh, hypothesis would be that when it comes to properties, they are, as Swinburne would say, dependent on a, a substance. Um, but you could have concepts mm -hmm. that put together properties. So, for example, you could have 
a concept of being red or blue. Mm-hmm. And that concept doesn't apply to anything. Yeah. Yeah. And so on this account, um, this is a really great question because it sort of forces me even to think about how my view of how my current view of properties fits with the sort of view of aboutness, right? Yeah. Because in my theory of aboutness, I'm talking about these properties that exist and they're not instantiated. Um, so either I'm going to have to analyze those in terms of concepts. Um, yeah. Well, our concept- I think that's what I've got to do. So th- this just shows the value of like building a world because you have these pieces that you have to revisit Seriously. and integrate with other pieces, other yeah. developments. Yeah. But yeah. So I think that that's basically going to be my view is that okay. these, um, these, this, on this theory of aboutness um, in terms of these elements, these more basic elements, I'm going to have to think of them as concepts if they exist and are not applying to anything. And, um, man, I, I hate to do even more of this, but uh, are concepts, concepts are, th- are thoughts? Concepts, I think of our elements of thoughts. Elements of thoughts. Okay. So uh, are thoughts built up, yeah. of, made, made up of concepts? Okay. Yes. That's how and, I think about it. Yes. And, and but you're, you don't want to make co- uh, concepts into platonic things? It's like, where do, where do concepts exist? Well, some of this is vocabulary, but like, so you yeah. have a concept of uh-huh. red and then I have a concept of red. Yeah. Um, Maybe it's abstracted out from. Now you could talk about just the property being red, mm-hmm. which is sort of a common element between the concepts. My thought is that when we're talking about an atomic property, like being red, yeah, um, it exists. My latest hypothesis is that it exists if it's grounded in some kind of substance, like a red substance. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Man, this is so good. I, I, but this it, is really at the edge. You know, I, yeah. I'm pretty tentative about this. You know, okay. I, 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 I think for the purposes of giving a theory of aboutness or propositions, what I like to do is show how my the structure of my theory fits in different metaphysical systems. Okay. So we can see how it fits on a Platonist system. We can see how it fits mm. on this kind of Aristotelian system, on a, a conceptualism. It's pretty flexible, and that and that's a good thing. It bolsters. That's, it. I, I, yeah, yeah. So it's you, can, a you guys thing. can use it, and all you guys can use it. Yeah, yeah. It's a great thing. It makes it less likely to be false. I think. Sure. Sure. Okay. Um, okay. So we got we we kind of already talked about the problem of matching. I think, uh, unless you want to add anything else. Yeah, I mean, just that you can either treat matching as a basic relation that mm-hmm. you witness directly in your own consciousness, um, or. Um, you can give an analysis. Yeah. And yeah. so in my book, I, I give that analysis in yeah. terms of the exemplification of the parts. Okay. Okay. So, so I wanted to, to, to touch on the, the slingshot. The slingshot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, man. So, and I made you to, again, folks, like he's doing me this huge favor of going back to a work that he's worked on. That's not his current study. Uh, and it was way back then. And, and since it was your dissertation too, uh, it's so interesting with you guys. Uh, I did a master's thesis. And so it's, it's like a small, tiny one of those, but the, the things that come into your brain and go onto the page. Sometimes I learned that five minutes ago and I wrote it down and now it's no longer here any longer. So the fact that you can recall this stuff. Or is, maybe it is, lasts is for a few years. So yeah. I mean, I reread yeah. that my chapter. I was like, Oh man, this is deep. <laughs> like, yeah, this is yeah. deep. yeah. But yeah, no, I mean, I, I, we can, I'm, I'm ready to, to discuss it. Um, okay. Well, the slingshot argument hit me. Um, and it was interesting for my paper because I wanted, I was giving a Vantillian analysis of facts and I was trying to find the one, the problem of the one in many in, literature on facts. And I thought, well, I have the many, that's easy. 
Um, but where do I find this this one? And I found Davidson, and, and he kind of poses this problem for facts in that uh, he's I think he's pulling this from Frig from Frega. Yeah. Um, and, and Quine, I think, talks about it too, but he applies it to facts and says, hey, look, if, if you can substitute all these different things in the, in the same place, then there's not facts. There's one great big fact. And this is a problem for fact theorists because we want to say that there's facts, not yeah. fact. And so you, you, can, you, can you lay it out first? Better yeah, yeah. yeah, that's great. Yeah. So basically the worry is that um, if you think that propositions correspond to reality, okay, mm-hmm. and then if you call the elements of reality that propositions correspond to, if you call those facts, yeah, okay, then you need facts in your ontology. Mm-hmm. But then there's this worry, this kind of slingshot argument. It's a slingshot because the idea is like, if you have facts, it turns out for various technical reasons that there's only going to be one big fact. Yeah. And that's supposed to be counterintuitive because if you're a correspondence theorist, you think propositions correspond to things they're about. Two plus two equals four should correspond to like some numbers shouldn't correspond to a cat, for example. <laughs> right. Tibbles is on the mat, should correspond to a cat, not some numbers. Mm-hmm. But uh, if the slingshot argument goes through, actually all the truths correspond to this one fact. And that's a kind of reductio. There's got to be something wrong. Yeah. And so, you know, well, how does this work? Why is there this slingshot? Well, you pointed to it in terms of um, substitution of terms. Mm-hmm. There's a, I call it a semantic premise where if you, um, substitute terms in a sentence. So like, let's say you say, um, I just drank a cup of water. And then somebody says, let's replace water with H2O. Mm -hmm. I just drank a cup of H2O. Those terms seem, they refer to the same thing. Mm -hmm. And so even though those sentences have different words, um, they should actually correspond. If they're true, they should correspond to the same thing. And the reason again, is just because you just substituted words that refer to the same thing. Now there's this weird thing. There's this weird way because then you're wondering, okay, how do you go from here to there's only one fact, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. So this is only a philosopher's. So there are some objections that only philosophers get worried about. Okay. Like my students never get worried about this. <laughs> and I don't know if that's, it's really a compliment to philosophers necessarily, but I do think that worrying about these things can help you to go deeper in your metaphysics. This is yeah. what we were talking about before the show that really understanding um, this slingshot argument can give you a much more penetrating insight into the nature of facts, into the nature of language. Um, but the way this works, if I can just read the yeah. argument here. Yeah, there's the logical premise and semantic premise. Yeah. And just, I actually don't, I don't know if I understand the, the difference there. So if you could help me with so that. So the one. logic premise is about logical equivalence. Yep. Um, basically, the premise here. So, okay, so there's there's two premises and then some deductions. So mm-hmm. first we've got premise, I call it A1. The logic premise says if S and T, these are sentences, are logically equivalent, just meaning here minimally that S is true if and only if T is true. Yep. Okay, there's just kind of this minimal logical equivalence. Then they correspond to the same thing. Yeah. And the okay. idea is that, well, as long as they're logically equivalent, then, you know, they're going to be about the same reality. And this is, um, this is the cup of water and cup of H2O, right? No, no, okay. So that's the semantic premise. Okay. Well, th- those are logically equivalent too. So that's why it's confusing. Yeah. But um, but the semantic premise is about the ter- swapping out words. Okay. Okay. So, um, so here's the semantic premise. If S and T are semantically equivalent, then they correspond to the same thing where S is semantically equivalent to T means S and T are expressible by sentences X and Y, respectively, 
such that the only difference between X and Y is that in the place of a referring term R and X, uh, Y has a distinct term that has the same referent as R. Mm-hmm. I know that's a mouthful, but yeah. basically you replace words like water with H2O and they refer to the same thing. And as long as that's the only difference between the sentences, you just swapped out referring terms or refer to the same thing, yeah. then they should correspond to the same reality. Okay. And that's pretty intuitive. But then there's just this weird thing. So I'm just going to read the rest of the argument. Yeah, um, I got it here in front of me too. But yeah, so so I'm following along with you. Yeah, so A3 says, um, so it says, take any sentence S. Um, that sentence is going to be logically equivalent to a sentence Q, where Q equals, okay, here it is. Um, this, this is such a mouthful. Um, Q equals object O mm-hmm. equals the X such that X equals O and S is true. Mm-hmm. Now, now the, <laughs> the reason for that is because we're just picking out, we're trying to come up with a, a, a referring term using the word the. So yeah. we're saying the X such that, and then we're just like giving this um, other sentence S, which mm-hmm. has like nothing to do with Q. Um, okay. So, but then the next premise is that Q is semantically equivalent to R. R equals uh, the following. O equals the X such that X equals O and T is true. Mm-hmm. Okay. So T is some other thing that has nothing to do with R. Um, and so then from all of this, we can see that R is logically equivalent to T. See, I th- we, this has to be put on the page. I mean, because I can't even explain yeah. this because yeah. um, you can show this. I mean, I spend some time in the next paragraph showing why they're logically equivalent. You can yeah. see it if you understand the terms. Mm-hmm. And so then what it follows that uh, the conclusion here is that S and T, even though they're like unrelated, yeah. they have to correspond to the same thing because they turn out to be semantically equivalent and logically equivalent. Mm -hmm. Um, And I go through some possible responses, but in the end, I say, I think kind of what you would almost imagine me to say, which is that those complex things that I just read are disguising different propositions Mm -hmm. that themselves have terms that aren't co-referring. So it turns out, I think the problem is with that semantic premise. Yeah. But I really spend a lot of time digging into that. And I talk about different theories. Oppie's got a response, different people who've interacted with this. And I try to show that, you know what, really the way you solve this is not just by doing semantics. You actually have to do the metaphysics. You have to get to the metaphysics of facts, Mm -hmm. the metaphysics of propositions in order to see that just because you can write this, because here's, I think, the upshot. I think there's a lot here that's sort of hard to follow. But the Mm -hmm. upshot is that, um, just because you can write things in such a way that all the referring terms refer to the same thing, it doesn't follow that what you've actually expressed metaphysically yeah. is about the same thing. Right. right. Okay, that's, that was the key insight of, of that chapter. Yeah. But the way that I saw that was by actually working through the metaphysical nature of propositions and facts. I, that same that out. That same point was was brought up by um, J.P. Moreland on on my show, where he was he was talking he was kind of criticizing a lot of the the work in philosophy of mind in, in the 20th century because he's saying they weren't 
I, this is his words. They weren't the best metaphysicians. They're absolutely right. Peter Van Wagen would say the same thing. Okay. Yes, absolutely. Oh my goodness. Like, and okay, I don't want to say anything negative about sure. those working in the field of philosophy of mind. I actually rather say something positive, which is that when these fields can, people in these fields can work together. Yeah. We're so much more powerful. Like if you can open the hood, you get into the engine, you take apart the pieces, you start making these distinctions, these distinctions between, you mentioned substances, um, these theories of properties, theories of concepts, theories of aboutness, theories of language. And you, you begin to work through all those things. Then you come back and you talk about mental states, mm-hmm. mental events, mental right. processes, and you start seeing, okay, there's a difference between talking about the properties, the substances, um, and, and you, yeah, you, you can just make this, there's a lot of, there are a lot of theories in this field that are hard to parse because they're different. There are different metaphysical yeah. accounts of yeah. them. Yeah. That's, that's why I'm, I'm really excited that, that you're doing this work as a metaphysician and, uh, Brandon Rickabaugh doing work in the philosophy of mind. As, oh, yeah, he's you know, great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Deeply into the metaphysics. Um, uh, yeah, it was interesting to see that that uh, see Oppie's name back back in the day in 2014, and JC Beal and and all these guys who were kind of contemporary. Yeah, Graham, I, mean, I, I noticed. Yeah, I noticed that I, I was rereading my chapters. Like, oh yeah, I'm interacting with Graham Oppie, and I have wholehearted agreement with his yeah. account. Yeah, right, right, but I right. Support I it great. with my theory. Yeah, yeah. So you end up saying um, uh, that this this version of the slingshot argument um, is is kind of um done away with or it's it's um not as scary because of the aboutness condition that correspondence theorists uh, adopt uh so it's the it, it comes to the rescue of the uh the logic premise and i thought that's that's great because that's what you're working on now is aboutness so it kind of came full circle yeah uh, in, in, in or Absolutely. maybe not full circle but you just further developed the, the understanding the nature of aboutness is key here to really see how this works i mean it, it it's it's sort of like a the, the aboutness leads into the problem because the problem was that uh, if you have propositions about the same reality, they should co- correspond to the same reality. Yeah, right. Um, but then by having greater insight into aboutness, you can see how even if you have these co-referring terms, that doesn't mean they're actually about the same reality. Right. Once you unpack the nature of those weird propositions. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I thought maybe this isn't isn't uh, accurate, but I thought you're – that that um, explanation you just gave bolsters like natural language versus what we want to do when we you know mathem- mathematicalize our language and and you know the whole project of of Russell uh, and so natural language is richer and so you can talk about mm-hmm. drinking water and you can talk about drinking H two O and in natural language if someone said I'm drinking H two O you'd say you're kind of a dork and you kind of don't express <laughs> yourself very well you know in this context and so. I, I thought that was really interesting. I don't know if that's true or not, but that seems. Yeah, like no, a, I'm, I'm with helpful. you. And the only thing I want to add here is that even if you do think that water and H2O, um, let's see, how, how should I say this? Even if you think the proposition I'm drinking water is about the same thing as the proposition I'm drinking H2O, um, even if you think that, still in a slingshot argument, the propositions in question are different because they include these other gerrymandered sentences that end up referring to very different things. And, and well, I was going to say on any theory, but that's too bold. It's not on any <laughs> theory. Like that's why we have to do the, to do the work. Yeah. Um, I say just because actually when you start thinking about H2O and 
water, it isn't actually even trivial that yeah. those are about the same thing. Yeah. And this does take us into the metaphysics here because you can distinguish between the different properties of water. So you yeah. can talk about its molecular structure, which you might call that H2O. And then you can talk about its properties with respect to drinkability and the like of that. And you might think of water as referring to these other properties, or you might think of water as referring to the molecular structure. So, so you just got to be careful with, with your terms there. Yeah. Um, but a lot of times people won't be careful because they won't know about these deeper distinctions beneath yeah. the surface. Yeah. So the metaphysics is, is important. So, so co-referring terms uh, yield propositions that are, uh, that correspond to different things. They so, can. So, yeah. So if they're, so they're actually not co-referring, right? After well, all. so it, I guess it just depends on what you, uh, I mean, I, so technically the terms are co-referring because they pick out the same thing, but they okay. do it in the example that I gave. And it's hard to really do this without having the screen display sure. those sentences because yeah. they were pretty complex. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the method of reference. So one thing was like referring to something like, like being the O or being that object let me use an example being the rock mm -hmm. such that snow is white okay <laughs> and then being um the rock such that um two plus two equals four yeah those are co-referring terms they're about the same thing they're about the rock yeah okay but they refer to it in different ways such that actually when you parse it out um i want to say they're not actually fully about the same thing because one of them is about some numbers you know yeah so yeah. Do, you, do you see what i'm trying to say there yeah, yeah um, that's good that's yeah. good do you, man i think the concrete example does help because it is a, sort of a philosopher's trick where we're coming up with co-referring terms but we're using mm. these sentences yeah that are about very different things yeah <laughs> so that's where it gets tricky. Dude, this whole thing's been an apologetic for studying metaphysics this is great this is really yeah this is really, absolutely really and maybe see part of the problem with metaphysics is the word people they hear that yeah. and they think about maybe some sort of philosophy in the bookstore that's kind of mysticism or something or witchcraft there's they put witchcraft in there now sometimes they have price right like it, weird stuff. yeah yeah and sort of new age philosophy or something yeah. and nothing against that but just to yeah, say the that. kind of analytic metaphysics that i do is very different and i remember it's actually telling somebody that I do analytic metaphysics. And they said, that's like an oxymoron. They kind of laughed about it. And hmm. I realized, oh, it's because the word metaphysics just like has a different meaning in the popular culture. So I don't know. I don't really know what to do about that. I've been sort yeah. of using um, other terms like fundamental ontology or the nature oh, of the foundations of existence or things like that. Yeah. Um, but just because the term metaphysics people, but, but if you know what I mean, when I'm talking about fundamental ontology, the nature of things, then I can use the word metaphysics to say, right. okay, now that's what I'm talking about. Right. And really, it, it's so epic to me because it's like people, you, you say met, uh, theoretical physics. Hey, I study theoretical physics. Everyone's like, whoa, holy cow. And you're like, hey, I study metaphysics. It's like, all right, dude, settle down. You know? <laughs> settle down. It's like it's just one step further and undergirding all the theoretical physics anyways. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the boundary there blurs. I remember yeah. reading this article, The Metaphysics of Quantum Mechanics, and um, this was by a philosopher, but then recently I was just reading a physicist talk about the metaphysics of quantum mechanics. Um, and this person's an empirical scientist, you know, and, and it's like, okay, I don't really, I mean, you have different degrees, you're in different fields, but you're talking about the same thing. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and, and actually it would be really nice if, if you guys got a little bit closer because 
you're not including all the data that each other has. Yeah. <laughs> so, right. um, but you're, but you're actually trying to do the same thing, which is trying to understand the nature in this case, a fundamental physical reality. Yeah. And if, is, is that metaphysics? I mean, that's something that I'm interested. I want to know the nature of fundamental physical reality. I mean, I think for some people, literally, it's more helpful if I tell them that that's what I'm interested in. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's one of the things I'm interested in. Then if I say that I'm a metaphysician, yeah. because it gives them the wrong impression. Sure. Sometimes. Yeah. But yeah, no, it's, I can't over overemphasize how much power studying these basic concepts can yeah. give you. Yeah. To think about things clearly. I mean, that's the goal. And I think maybe sometimes in the popular sphere, people don't appreciate that that is the goal is to be clear mm -hmm. because there's so much unclarity in the hard work of digging in. It's yeah. like dirty and messy, but look, we're not trying, like we're not getting dirty for dirty sake, right? Yeah. Like <laughs> we're, we're here digging into these concepts, trying to get clear, trying to make these definitions more precise, trying to figure out what our data is, using all the instruments, using the latest science, reading the latest physics, reading the latest philosophy of physics, all of it. Yeah. So we can get to the truth. Yeah. Speaking of truth, right? I mean, that's, yeah, that's our goal. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wanted to move from truth and see if we get to, to necessary existence to a necessary mind, maybe real quick to kind of tie this whole thing together. So we have, we have um, truth is, uh, truth corresponds, truth is that which corresponds to, well, I'm going to do you, I'm not going to do you justice. Uh, can you, I wanted to say to reality. affairs, but to reality. Okay. Yeah. Um, or to something we could say. Yeah. And so, how do we move? So your your guys' argument in chapter seven is so good. So it's um, it's from uh, necessarily there's an abstract object. Mm -hmm. So um, can we get there from states of affairs? Like, I, I mean, you wrote these books and stuff. Well, what do you, what do you think? <laughs> how do we get to premise one? Necessarily, there's an abstract object. Yeah, this is one of those topics where my thinking is also a bit in flux on this. Um, yeah. Just thinking about different accounts of necessity. Mm -hmm. But I do have this article um, called From Necessary Truth to Necessary Existence. And then in that chapter, uh, we also draw out that same kind of argument. And so okay. basically the argument is that in order for there to be necessary truths, okay, like for example, one plus one equals two. Mm -hmm. um, there's a principle of logic that the necessity itself is not just contingent. It's not just... A coincidence or anything like that it's actually metaphysically necessary so mm -hmm. if it's necessary that one plus one equals two then that necessity is also necessary so it's necessary that it's necessary that one equal one plus one equals two yeah okay that's well, not then s5 there, is it? I, that, I, that's not s5 no no okay. that's um no s, oh, you just need s4 i mean okay you you just need um in fact um from k so named after after kripke there's a kind of minimal a minimal logic where the theorems of logic are themselves necessary. Yeah. Yeah. So you just take a theorem of logic um, and then it's necessary. Okay. So, um, and okay. So then you go from necessity to truth. Mm -hmm. There's an argument there that like, if something actually has necessity, then it also has truth. Um, and then, but it can't have truth unless it exists because it can't have anything unless it exists. Right. Right. Okay. Now let me be clear. The argument here isn't that, there has to be a truth maker. Um, maybe there does, maybe there doesn't, but it's actually a more basic argument that there has to be a truth bearer. Yeah. Right, be the right. thing that is true. So like, you know, yeah. if there's something red, then there's something there, right? That's red. Yeah. Um, okay. So if there's, so, so, so here's the argument. Yeah. Um, 
some things are necessarily true and then it's necessary that they're necessarily true. Mm-hmm. Necessity entails truth, which entails existence. So therefore it's necessary that they exist. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, let me try that again with an example. So two plus two equals four is necessarily true. It's necessary that it's necessarily true. Um, truth entails existence. So it's necessary that it exists. Yes. That awesome. it, it's necessary that two plus two equals four exists. Yeah. So that gets you to the necessary existence of something. And that's an, this, and this that's abstract. Ab, yeah, that's abstract. And then, yeah, and you go all the way to there's a necess, necessarily uh, there is a necessary concrete object. So there, that's yes, the whole thing. I know it. Like, a, I don't want to ask you yeah. to repersonate the I, whole I, I, thing, right? The, but, the, the sketch is just that you might think for various. There's different routes. We give a few different routes. Yeah. you might think that abstract things can't just sort of exist um, on their own mm-hmm. without something concrete. Either because you think abstract it depends on a mind yeah okay or you just think as i was suggesting earlier that it depends on some kind of substance yeah like a red redness depends on a red substance yeah um and so well, if that's Welty right and Anderson, Welty and Anderson go the mind route they right? go the mind route yeah, yeah. so just, I tell you, take, yeah in the, so in the book we, we in the in the book we give a mind route mm-hmm. um so and it's funny how there's certain ideas that like i wasn't really sympathetic to them as a graduate student in philosophy but then when I started teaching and I saw my students just like natural intuitions uh, and they're like, you can't have a prop an abstract proposition without a mind thinking. Yeah. They're, they're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, what's, what's wrong with abstract propositions without mind? You know, <laughs> <laughs> and like they just forced me to like, think about it Love because that. I take so seriously that natural intuition. Mm-hmm. And I do believe that philosophers kind of have a way like just following each other into obscurity. Sometimes sure. we sort of lose those natural intuitions. So I want to, I don't want to overstate this, but I mean, I, I do think there is a kind of intuition here and students have helped me to appreciate it, that these abstract things couldn't exist without a mind. And if you think that, then you have a pathway from a necessary abstract reality to a necessary mind. Yeah. Yeah. That's the idea. I like that. That was like the escape route you gave them. You're like, Hey, if you want to jump off here, you can go to a, a necessary mind, but I don't think you're going to want to do that. If you don't like this, I, I thought it was so great. The escape route was right to a, a necessary mind. And then otherwise you got to keep following down to a concrete, concrete, concrete object. Yeah. I, yeah. 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 It's a kind of a dialectically um, fun little. Yeah. It was slick. Path. Yeah. So I can't remember if you, you and Bruce are so good and careful too. Um, do you guys end up saying that the, the object is a, a necessary mind? The necessary concrete object is a mind. Sorry. No, no, we, we just yeah. leave that open. Yeah. yeah so in this thought. book, we're just trying to see if we can make an argument for a necessary concrete thing. Yeah. So we you, guys, that you guys did this like, oh man, I should have read this earlier, uh, this part of it, but you, you guys did like a survey and I think it's been like five years or something like that for, for philosophers to who. Yeah. Can, necessarybeing.com. Yeah. That survey. Yeah. So we created that. Um, and so I led the production of that. And it was very interesting. There was a, a window of, I don't know, three months or so. I don't remember exactly how long, but we officially collected people's answers. Okay. Not five years. Yeah. And uh, we saw whether people would answer questions that entail that there is a necessary concrete thing. And so, yeah, it turns out most people have answers, will give answers that entail that there's a necessary concrete thing. Not 100%, I think it was like 90, 95, 96%. Um, if they thought that there was no necessary thing, they were still 
like 93 or 4% likely to still give answers that entail that there is a necessary thing. Some of them emailed me even saying, oh, the argument convinced me, you know, I changed yeah, my mind. Yeah. So Otherwise awesome. they would say, okay, the, the argument helps me see which answer I should have answered differently. You know, it's like, that's fine too. Um, I thought it was very interesting if I could just add this here that, that those who said they didn't know whether there was a necessary thing, they're just agnostic. They were less likely than those who said there was no necessary thing to give the answers that entail that there is a necessary thing. Huh. So if they didn't know, I think it was like 92% yeah. followed the path to a necessary thing. And that actually suggested to me that if you didn't know, then that might even say something about like your sort of carefulness, like to be consistent yeah. with yourself or something. Sure. Like, sure. I don't know. And so you're that kind of person. So you're more mm -hmm. likely, but still 92% still took the path to, to a necessary thing. And then a, a cool stat is, even 80% of philosophy professors who said there's no necessary thing still took a yeah. path to a necessary concrete yeah. thing. So I thought that was kind of fun. That is really good. And you're, you're kind of playing in someone else's sandbox there. Psychology, you got some psychology in there with, with your philosophy. Yeah. Answers. And the goal isn't great. to trick people or trick right. them up. And, and people have pointed out, you know, you could have made a reverse argument uh, for no necessary thing and probably get a lot of people. In fact, I should say I did a survey on consciousness. This was with a student. Um, we, there was um, an official research project that we did this uh, a year ago in consciousness. We sent this out to a bunch of schools and we also got similar results here. We had arguments for there being consciousness that is not material and then um, arguments against consciousness, uh, arguments for materialism, arguments against materialism. So we had five arguments on both sides. Mm -hmm. And um, I haven't combed through all the results, but we, we found that people were more likely to give answers favoring that consciousness is not reducible to the material um, if they, even if they thought that it was, huh. they still gave answers to questions. Um, and they were fairly simple arguments. I mean, that yeah. we put into the, into the quiz. And that was more, the, it, it went in that direction more likely than in the other direction. Okay. Um, people thinking that it is material. So... Is that going to be, is it going to make an appearance in your consciousness book? I really do need to organize that data and cite it. I don't have it yet, but yeah, I, that's I do sweet. hope to. Yeah. Well, Josh, man, you give me so much of your time. This has been awesome. I, this I is so to, much fun. Yeah. I need thank to read you. that book again too. Uh, and like I said, I'm going to get a hard copy of it. Um, I recommend everyone else, you know, if you guys like truth, if you are interested, if you're a philosopher, philosophy student, whatever, jump in, dive on, dive into this book. It's really good. I also recommend uh, Alston's. Realist conception of truth, uh, of course, necessary existence, uh, facing facts. No one's going to be able to afford that. It's way too expensive. But then uh, how reason can lead to God is another great one, too. So. And Truth and Ontology by Trent Merricks. I do oh, think yeah, that totally. would be at the top of the list okay. you, to, to look into that. Okay. Um, but yeah, no, truth is one of those topics that people will pay so much money to get. They'll go to school. They'll get all yeah. this education. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll chase it down like gold. But very few people study, what is this thing? Yeah. And I think that you do equip yourself to get more truth by understanding more about what it is that you're getting. Yes. I think that does help. Yeah. And make it interdisciplinary. Talk to your epistemolog epistemological friends and say, hey, you want you know truth. We all take truth and knowledge. But what is truth? And and, and poke them a little bit and bring, them, bring them along in the journey. Yeah. Um, Josh, real quick. Um First, where, where can people find you if they want to get more of your stuff? And then two, um, when when can we expect the consciousness book? So the consciousness book, the draft is due at the end of September. It Sweet. might come out 
next summer possibly we'll see okay um so you know we're going to take some time with that make sure it comes out well um as far as finding me you can go to my website joshua l erasmussen.com and then i also have a worldview design training center worldview-design.com mm-hmm. um and i have a, a youtube channel worldview design yeah. as well so Awesome. Well, dude, this has been so much fun. I really, really appreciate it, especially during your, your research phase, uh, coming on and sharing all this knowledge with us. Um, Lord willing, we can talk about this more, and uh, someday I hope we do. But for now, that's going to have to do it. This has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God.